we've been wondering, that there are four chapters in Judges. In fact, Samson is the one judge who more space is given to than any other. And the story begins in chapter 13, 14, 15 and 16. And we've been wondering how to divide it up. Last week we looked at Samson's birth in chapter 13. And um, all of these talks will be going online during the next week. We, we don't know what to do when Ian Phantom goes on holiday. We've become so reliant on him doing all the things he does. So the, the talks have been recorded. They'll go online during this week. So if you want to catch up with those, you can. But um, let, let, me, let me explain by way of an in, in illustration. When I was a teenager, I went on a summer camp to the Lake District, um, uh, like an activity place on the side of Lake Windermere. And one of the activities I remember was that the staff there built what we called then a death slide. I think Americans call them zip wires. Uh, do you know what the kind of thing I mean? So the idea is that you climb to the top of this tree that they kind of stripped and put a ladder on. And when you got to the top, you felt like, I mean, it was a few, I don't know, it was... Was it maybe 150 feet high or something? It was really tall. Um, and you stood on a platform at the top, and there's a helper there, and he would put you in a harness, and then you'd, and he'd give you a pulley that was on a wire, and then you'd stand on the end of this platform, and he'd basically say, jump. And you'd shout something, you know, hopefully not rude, and scream, and, and you'd basically go down the zip wire over a little corner of the lake, and you'd land with a thud on the shore on the other side. I mean, it, totally exhilarating. I, I think chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Judges are very like that zip wire. This, this, and I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that we're going to bite off two chapters in one chunk today. Because I don't know where to break it. It's like going down the zip wire and stopping and then coming back next week for the other half. What starts at the beginning of chapter 14 is Samson wanting a Philistine wife. And that, and that starts this unstoppable, exhilarating chain of events until he lands with a thud at the end of chapter 15. And on the way down, he just kicks a whole load of Philistines in the face to make the zip wire even more exhilarating. We'll, we'll meet a roaring lion, a lost bet at a wedding, 30 guys killed so he could nick their clothes, a harvest ruined by 300 flaming foxes whose tails have been tied together, an act of arson that incinerates a family in their house, and it all ends with a thousand angry Philistines rushing down a hill to say, Ha! Ah, we've got him, we've got him, we've got him! And he picks up a jawbone and smashes a lot of them, and then stands on the top of a hill that became known as Jawbone Hill, Saying, I've made donkeys out of a lot of them. It's like a zip wire. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 14 and you don't finish until you get to the end of chapter 15. It is one coherent, unstoppable story. Samson wants a wife and that sets in motion this train of events that ends with a thousand Philistines being killed. I, I, was, I was saying to I was working out how to divide it up. Another question that occurred to me is, what, what is the author trying to tell us? That's a good question to ask when you read the Bible. What is the author trying to tell us? What is the point 
of this story and why does he tell it in the way he does? I think the key to what the author wants us to get is found in chapter 14 and verse 4. In our English Bibles, it's put in brackets. And it's very important that when, when the author is telling the narrative and he stops and explains why he's telling the narrative, that's a big clue as to what he wants us to get, isn't it? And when Samson wants this Philistine girl that he's seen to be his wife, his parent, it says there, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. There's a lot of secrets in these chapters. People knowing things and not knowing things and telling things and not telling things. But one crucial thing that Samson's parents didn't know, at least at the start, was that everything that was happening and was about to happen was all designed by God. That verse by the author tells us a lot about what the point of the story is. First of all, it seems pretty clear that God doesn't like the Philistines. This, it says, God was seeking an occasion to confront them. This is, I want you to get this, this is a serious situation for God's people at this point in history. The Philistines are the enemy of God's people. And God himself is looking for an opportunity to cause a fight. Secondly, it seems obvious to me as well, and we'll get this as we go through the story, that God's own precious people are asleep. They're so asleep that they're in danger of becoming extinct. They don't realise how bad things are. They, they, they've kind of fallen in love with the Philistines coming and going, living together with them, they've become so comfortable and complacent that they're they're beyond help and God has to intervene to disrupt the status quo. It's like they've so fallen in love with their enemies that God has to throw a spanner in the works to cause a divorce. That's really what's going on. That's what he says. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. God's had enough. His people are asleep. They're sleeping with the enemy and God designs all of this zip wire to wake them up. Everything that happens as we ride down the zip wire has been set in motion by God. This week, it's been announced that uh, Dan Walker, who, if, if you're a bloke, you'll know Dan Walker, because he presents Match of the Day sometimes and Football Focus. But he's, it's been announced this week that he's going to replace Bill Turnbull in the mornings to do BBC Breakfast show. I think Bill Turnbull's retiring, or I don't know if he's retiring or taking another job. But anyway, Dan Walker is going to replace Bill Turnbull. I think he's giving up his afternoon radio show, but carrying on doing football focus. And he's going to do Monday to Friday on the BBC. Dan Walker is a committed Christian. 
the, I, I don't know him personally, but the last time um, I, I heard, um, he, he was actually a member of Wycliffe Church over in Sheffield. Uh, I can't imagine he's there very much with his job. But um, anyway, this week there's been some attention given in the media to Dan Walker's Christian beliefs. And there was a chap this week who wrote in the Daily Telegraph, I saw this online, called Rupert Myers. This is what he said about Dan Walker. Dan Walker believes that God created the world. And this is what the, the journalist in the Daily Telegraph said. This was the headline, actually, or the comment on the headline. Dan Walker's creationism is an affront to reason, science, and logic. And the BBC has done nothing to explain how someone who believes in the literal truth of Genesis can present the news accurately. And this writer went on to, to write the most ridiculous diatribe against Dan Walker, ill-informed. But, but anyway, his point was, how can they have someone reading the news in the morning on TV who claims to believe in, that God created the world. Now, I'm aware, very aware, that many people have different views about Genesis and creation. And I think part of Mr. Meyer's issue was an attack on people who read Genesis very literally. And not all Christians do, there's some debate about that. But there is implied in his article... This idea that someone who believes that God created the world is somehow not intelligent enough to read the news or that somehow they'd be too biased to read the news. Which kind of rules out all Jews, all Muslims and all Christians immediately from reading any news, doesn't it? Because they all believe that somehow the world was created by God. Myers argues that such beliefs mean that Dan Walker will be biased. Why do I talk about Dan Walker when we talk about Samson? Here's the deal. There's a bigger question than the issue of creation. The Bible teaches us that God is not just the creator of all things, but the sustainer of all things. The Bible tells us that God is eternal. No one made him. And he made everything else that has been made. He sustains it all. And he is the sovereign king over all creation. Often when we're debating creation, we forget this is the real issue. There are actually two competing views of life here. One version says that life is purely physical and natural and basically random. And the other says that there is a loving creator God who is actually in control of all things. The author here in Judges believes that everything that happens here, even though it's messy, even though some of it is wicked, even though there's suffering involved, even though there's dysfunctionality, the author believes that it is from the Lord. That's what it says in verse 4. His parents didn't know that this 
was from the Lord. In other words, these events are not random. This zip wire isn't like (coughs) random accidents. All of this that we've read is guided in its very details by the hand of God himself from beginning to end. And then we read the narrative and as we've said we realise that this is dysfunctional, it's a mess. How can God be in control? How can God be at work here when everything seems out of control? Samson is God's chosen leader and even he seems out of control. Everybody he meets who offends him, he seems to kick their heads in. I I think the author wants us to see how ridiculous Samson is, how utterly mockable these Philistines are, and how complacent and even pathetic God's own precious people have become. What he really wants us to get is that none of that in any way prevents God doing whatever he pleases. He acts here in love, actually, to save his people, to judge his enemies, and he is intimately involved in all of the details. In other words, God's hands are not tired. They're not tired behind his back. He isn't impotent. He isn't absent. Actually, all of this is from him. God's hands are not tired. I only have three points now. It's a simple talk this. God's hands are not tired by Samson being flawed. They're not tired by his enemies being too strong. And they're not tired by his own people being asleep. None of those three things stop God from intervening and doing whatever he pleases. So there, that's our three things for today and we'll try and cover two chapters in a few little minutes now nothing prevents God doing what he desires to achieve his purposes so firstly let's have a look at the fact that God's hands are not tied by Samson being flawed there we go you've seen all three points the slides are simple today Here's the deal. God can use whoever he wants. And he can even use the sins and mistakes of people to further his purposes. He isn't surprised. He isn't caught off guard. He's never backed into a corner. Chapter 14 begins with a blurred border. Samson grew up right on the border between Israel and the Philistines in the west. Should do it that way, shouldn't I? That's the easy for you, isn't it? Um, he grew up right on the border. And you, you can sense here, Samson goes down to Timnah. That's an Israelite town. And in the Israelite town, he sees... He, but for him, he sees a fit young Philistine girl, doesn't he? That's what he sees. And his eyes are nearly popping out of his head 
And so a Philistine woman is living in an Israelite town and vice versa. This is right on the border and the two cultures have become completely co-dependent. And immediately, Samson has to have her. I've seen a Philistine woman. Now get her for me as my wife. Imagine he says that to his mum and dad. Now, if you were here last week and you were thinking about Samson's birth, God had already told Samson's parents that he would be the one who would begin delivering them from the Philistines. I don't know what he was like as a child or what he was like as a teenager. Some of you are parents. Maybe he was difficult, I don't know. But at this age now, his parents are thinking, how is he going to deliver the Philistines? He comes home and says, I want a Philistine wife. For goodness sake, man, you're supposed to be saving us from the Philistines. No, you want to marry one of them. His parents must have been confused at best. They must have been quite distressed at worst. You can imagine them debating, should he be gentle with him? It might pass. Or should he be angry with him and say, no chance? Well, this is a guy that has been devoted to God as a Nazarite since before he was born. This wasn't God's plan for life. This wasn't part of the script. His parents are thinking, if he marries this girl, it's over. Didn't God promise us a deliverer? What we've got is a delinquent. But you wonder what Samson's thinking as well, don't you? One writer says this, we find Samson to be the most flawed character in the whole book. A violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature and selfish man. Most disturbing of all, the Spirit of God seems to anoint and use his fits of peak pride and temper. He's impulsive. All he seems to think about is his feelings, his appetites. He sees something, he has to have it. He's rash and he's unteachable. His parents plead with him. This is not like an ethnic thing. This is to do with them being God's people. His parents tried to plead with him and he just puts his fingers in his ears and in verse 3 it's almost like Samson says to his dad I don't don't want to to talk about it, get her for me she's the right one for me just get her, I don't want to is he a big lad by this point? there are other things hidden away in this plot as well the, the Nazarite vow was a way of being devoted to God. We talked about it last week. And the sign of a Nazarite was that they didn't cut their hair, but they weren't allowed to eat unclean food. They weren't meant to touch dead bodies. Samson kills a lion. He doesn't tell his parents. More than that, when he goes back and takes the honey from the lion's carcass, he gives it to his parents. So it kind of... He has no respect for his vows. He has no respect for his parents. He effectively makes them religiously unclean without even telling them. Where'd you get the money for? Oh, I just was passing a shop, you know. I bought it from shop. 
He, he didn't tell his parents, he's just got it from a dead animal, which effectively makes them unclean. That Samson is a free spirit, living in the moment, satisfying every craving that occurs to him. He isn't able to think rationally or stop. He is really a man at the mercy of his own impulses. But the fascinating thing about all of this is that God has chosen him. One writer says, with brilliant irony, the narrator describes a free spirit, a rebel driven by selfish interests, doing whatever he pleases without any respect for his parents and with no respect for the claims of God on his life. But in the process, he ends up doing the will of God. What's that all about? God actually empowers him to do these things. Look, just look with me. Chapter 13 and verse 25, the very last verse, it says, The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him as a young man. Chapter 14, verse 6, Samson's happily walk on the road. It says there, a young lion comes roaring towards him. What does it say in verse 6? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And he tore the line apart with his bare hands. Often, if, if they were killing a goat, they would grab the hind legs. Sa- Samson did that to a lion. No, the spirit of the Lord. It's, it's like supernatural power. Verse, chapter 14, verse 19, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He goes down to Ascalon and kills 30 Philistines. Bosh! So he can nick their clothes to give to the ushers at the wedding. What, what is God doing empowering him to kill 30 people? Chapter 14, we, oh, we did it. chapter 15 verse 14, sorry. The Philistines come rushing down the hill towards him shouting and the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and the ropes just snapped like cotton and he basically kicks their heads in. I think we'd love to read these chapters and say, oh, Samson, you're a very violent man, you're a bad temper. But the author is at pains to say, this was the spirit of God, supernaturally. Giving him abilities that were not normal. And even verse 4, we've looked at it, was a mystery. He goes down to Timnar, he sees a Philistine girl... And his parents are basically having sleepless nights because they didn't know that this was from the Lord. One writer calls it divinely induced restlessness. God is throwing a spanner in the works to cause a divorce between the Israelites and the Philistines. Verse 4 does not mean that Samson's parents were wrong to plead with him to do the right thing. It doesn't mean that Samson's behaviour was okay. But what it does mean is that Samson's impulsive, rash determination to do the wrong thing does not tie God's hands behind his back and prevent God from achieving his purposes. Samson behaves like an idiot. And yet God uses him. Here's a question for you to think about. This is not like, you know, to put your hand up or anything. Should 
God only use good people who have the right beliefs and the right behaviour in their life. Should God only use good people who have the right beliefs and the right behaviour? Sometimes we might be tempted to think that God could never use that person. If you knew what they'd done. The problem with that kind of thinking is that it puts God in a box. What we're really saying is God can't do this until dot, 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 dot. Certain conditions are met. Actually, God's dealings in these two chapters alone blow that out of the water. God is able to use the most selfish, brutish, fiery man. I'm not sure we would even have a man like Samson as a member of our church. Would it? Would he pass? Like, I don't know. He's not living a godly life, is he? He's a disappointment. He's a source of grief to his parents. My point here isn't that God condones Samson's behaviour at all. My point is that God shatters our expectations of what he can do. He can build success out of failure. He can advance his purposes in the world even when people do stupid things. He is not limited or restricted or defeated by our mistakes. His purposes actually transcend our mistakes. His hands are not tired by our failures. The moment we say, God can't do this or he won't do this because dot dot dot, we are putting him in a box of our own making. Here, the free spirit of Samson acts on impulses that are in no way good. And all the while, God's plans are coming to fruition. God saves his people, the Israelites, not only in spite of their sin, he actually saves them through the rashness and impulsiveness of Samson's sin. Secondly, and later uh, on, God's hands are not tied by Samson's flawed character, but secondly, they're not tied by the strength of his enemies. There's an American uh, writer called Dale Roth Davis who wrote a commentary on the book of Judges, and in that commentary, he suggests that the story of Samson is meant to be read as a satire against the Philistines. Because it is so brutal, we might fail to see the humour that is intended here. The author writes this narrative in a way that makes the enemy look like clowns. There's a little clue at the end when Samson talks about making donkeys of the Philistines. He, he uses a donkey's jawbone and says, I've made donkeys of them. In the Hebrew, it's a little play on words. He's having a joke at their expense. But it's, it's in the narrative as well. 
the Philistines, when they threaten Samson's work, they've got a problem. They make this bet. I mean, it's an amazing bet as well, isn't it? Sam, there's no way they could have guessed the answer to that riddle, is there? Because they didn't know he killed a lion. But Samson puts the odds. He like gives them really good odds. And they're like, ooh, we could be quids in here. He basically says, if you, if you get the antisrael, I'll give all of you a new set of clothes. And the boxer shorts and the vest and the socks as well. Don't worry about that. Undergarments as well. I'll kick you out with a new set of clothes. Sunday best. 30, all of you. But if you can't get it, you all have to give me one set. So he gets the 30. So for them, it's, it's like, they're, they're, it, Samson goes to the says, do you want to play a game? Let's make this weather exciting. And they're like, okay, we like those odds. Let's play. Let's play. And he tells them the riddle. They spend three days sweating. And then they go to his wife. And aren't they brutal? On the fourth day, they go to his wife and say, you've only brought him here to rob us. This, this Israelite, you can tell, you can see the tension between them. You've got to coax this out of him and give us the answer to riddle because this is going to cost us. They threaten Samson's wife and they win the bet as a result. What happens? Samson goes bananas and 30 Philistines are murdered to give them the Sunday best that they won in the bet. In the next chapter, the harvest time, Samson's father-in-law thinks he's gone. Don't think he's coming back. He was pretty mad. I'll give it to someone else. It's a solution. There's going to be peace. Man, there's no peace. Samson again goes berserk. I'll show them. 300 foxes, ties the tails together, lights them, sets them loose. Basically, all the um, corn has gone. The grapes in the vineyard have gone. The olives in the olive grove has gone. Their economy is in ruins they thought they had a solution every time they think they've won Samson screws it up they then punish Samson's wife and family by burning their house down Samson responds by viciously smashing them again then they think they've got Samson tied up the next thing the teeth are being smashed out these Philistines all the way through think that they're winning and every time they think they've won they've lost do you get that? the, the whole story is written as it's almost like poking fun at them and even at the end of the story in chapter 60 if you know the end of the story they catch Samson they gouge his eyes out and they mock him and, and for entertainment Samson says just put my hands on the pillars and there's 3,000 people upstairs he pushes the pillars and the roof comes down. Even then, they think they've won, but they lose. Because Samson is a pest. Every time they think they've won, Samson pops up and goes, these are the guys who are losing while they think they're winning. If you were an Israelite reading this, I think you would be laughing at their arrogant stupidity they are brutal, but they're bumbling clowns. 
Sometimes, I was trying to think how to explain this. Sometimes I think we know this. Jane and I, where's Jane? There she is. Jane and I have been watching some back episodes of the BBC drama Silent Witness. Do you like Silent Witness? There's a few nods there. I, I don't really like watching the gory bits. I don't like watching Casualty, really. But if I, if I close my eyes when there's too much go, I'm all right. But um, some of the baddies in that show are just awful. They've done really terrible things and the story builds and at certain points the you know the bad guy or whatever they think they've got away with it and then they're cocky and they're strutting about as though they're untouchable. And as you watch in the show you're like, well he's gonna get it in a bit and he's just and then some you know, a piece of hair found in the footwell of the car has got his and, and you think, Yes, he's look at that, what an idiot. He didn't clean up properly, did he? That that it you end up being glad that the bad guy gets put down because he's gone too far, made a mistake. That's what's going on in this narrative. All the way through the narrative there's this pattern where every time the Philistines try to solve a problem and breathe a sigh of relief, Samson comes along and ruins it. What is the lesson for us in all of this? I think this dark satire, humour, even though brutal, is designed to show us how foolish it is to be an enemy of the living God or of his people for that matter it is almost as if God is toying with them holding them up to ridicule and portraying how ridiculous it is to mess with him or his people it's almost like God is saying you think you're winning but even when you're winning you're really losing Later on in the Bible, there's a book of songs, and uh, 150 of them, Psalms. Let me read to you from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And then it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The picture there in that song is of the world, if you like, shaking its fist at God and saying, where is he? And it says there that God sits above it all, unruffled, unperturbed, unconcerned, mocking, laughing at their puny arrogance. God's hands are not tired by the cleverness or strength or brutality of his enemies. Actually, in the end, those who fight against him end up looking stupid. The supreme example of this has to be, doesn't it, the cross where Jesus died. The enemies of God 
kill the Son of God. It looks like they've won. Do you remember the scene? C.S. Lewis wrote that book, didn't he? The Lion, the Witch and the Road. Have you seen the film? And all those evil creatures. When, when Aslan voluntarily goes to the rock to be sacrificed. And all those kind of witches and evil goblins. They're all like hoping and hollering. And they tie Aslan up and they shave his mane. And they lay him down on the rock. And they kill him. And they think they've won. Great celebrations when Jesus was murdered by his enemies. They can hardly believe it. But as they're murdering him, he is actually dying to save people from their sins. And the very defeat that they inflict was actually the greatest demonstration of love and power that the world has ever seen. And imagine what they felt like on Easter Sunday. When the one they'd murdered and thought they'd won rises from the dead. In the, in the film, Aslan comes and, and the rock's shattered and the, and the children see him standing there as the sun comes up and he just lets out this amazing roar. They've seen him die. The enemy thought they'd won. But even when they were winning, they were actually hammering a nail into their own coffin. All they've done is to further God's own purposes. In the New Testament, a man called Paul could write these words. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here's the verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. That's it. He made a public spectacle of them. His enemies thought he'd won, and as they were killing him, he was saving people. Compared to God, his enemies always look like clowns. Sometimes it can look like evil is winning, sometimes evil itself thinks it's won. But God sits enthroned and he laughs and scoffs at the puny arrogance of his creatures who think they can defeat him. God's hands are not tied by the flaws in Samson. God's hands are not tied by the strength of his enemies. And lastly, God's hands are not tied by his people being asleep I hope we haven't gone to sleep there's a profoundly sad exchange in these verses as Samson is cooling off in his man cave the Philistines come for him they want to fight and the Philistines camp in Judah 
one of the most important tribes of Israel. And the men of Judah go to their Philistine. Are they friends? Are they enemies? I don't know what they are. They go to the Philistines anyway and say, well, have you come out to fight us, Paul? We don't want to fight. It's clear that they want Samson. Verse 10. We have come to take Samson prisoner and to do to him what he did to us. At this point, the men of Judah have a choice. These are the tribe that generations before had smashed God's enemies in order to possess the promised land. By now, they've forgotten how to fight. Spineless. They've become so assimilated into Philistine culture that given one more generation and the Israelites would be extinct. And here in the Bible, they would rather hand over God's chosen deliverer to their enemy than be freed to worship God. They would rather keep the peace and avoid conflict than be right with God or fight evil around them or even within themselves. There's a challenge here because this is always how it is, isn't it? Is it not true that in our own human nature we would rather keep the peace than fight? I want to say some things this afternoon. God, God's ways are not like sanitized. God is not some kind of sentimental Father Christmas figure. He is not offering salvation to the world in a hermetically sealed clean room. He's not dissing out candy floss to excited children. This is deadly serious. The Bible's perspective on our world is that war has broken out. Evil has surfaced. The world is literally a bloody mess. And here in Judges, this is, these are all stories to teach us things. Here in Judges, the problem is that God's people have fallen asleep. They're comfortable, they're complacent, there's no reason to fight. It's quite nice living here with the Philistines, they're okay really. And what does God do? Are his hands tied? Is he incompetent or absent? No. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets involved in the muck and grime and mess of human lives. I I think to our sensitivities it can look brutal, but he means business. The complacency of his own people, the stupidity of his enemies, even the stubbornness and rashness of his own chosen leader are all no obstacle to God working out his own plans. This God wants to cause a divorce he throws a spanner in the works to wake his people up before they die completely is this not the story of the world 
when Christianity, when you think about it, from one angle, is not nice. We'd love to think that Christianity is just, it's just really nice, isn't it? It's just nice. Many people want to strip the Bible of anything that is not nice so that other people won't be offended. We just want to be nice. That's what the Israelites wanted. But this is a war. God sent his son into the world to die a bloody death on a Roman cross. I don't think there's anything nice about that. We didn't ask for it. We didn't even know that we needed it. In spite of our sin, in spite of the hatred of God's enemies, God triumphs over all of it to save his people. It's a war. God's hands are not tired by the character flaws in Samson, by the brutality or stupidity of the Philistines, or by the complacency of his people. He is faithful to all his promises. What do we do with all this? Let me just point you to the last part of chapter 15. As we close, where we see Samson's thirst and God answering his prayer. The zip wire ride has made him tired. He lands at the end of chapter 15 and he's shattered. He throws the jawbone away and he's thirsty. His strength is spent. And for the first time, we see Samson lifting his eyes to God. He prays. But his prayer is mixed. In the end, he seems to pray for personal security. Oh, keep me safe, God. Rather than national safety or God's honour. It's interesting. Must I fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Ten minutes ago, wanted to marry one. It's like it's a mixed prayer, isn't it? His prayer is quite possibly selfish here. God has saved him from a lion, a lost bet, and now a thousand angry Philistines. And yet he comes to God and says, "Must I now die? Please help me." God's been helping him for the last. Two chapters. Samson has known the power of God's spirit to enable him to do great external exploits. But he has so little inward holiness. Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges says, Samson has the gifts of the spirit, but very little of the fruit of the spirit. His outward life is impressive. His inward life is a train wreck. He can smash the Philistines with a jawbone, but his heart is disintegrating. The last page of my Give him to Joe and sneak preview. 
Listen, Samson is thirsty. Does that idea not sum up how life can be sometimes for all of us? I I think we too are often thirsty, spiritually thirsty. Like Samson, we've been restless, sometimes even foolish. For some of us, it can take half a lifetime to even realise that that's been the case. But here Samson prays. He does not pray a perfect prayer. (coughs) But friends, he prays. And God doesn't give him a lecture on ethics. Isn't that amazing? This awesome God does not have hands that are tied behind his back. He graciously answers Samson's prayer even though it's mixed, even though there's selfishness mixed in with it, and he refreshes him right there, right then. His hands are not tired. He isn't waiting for Samson to be perfect. I'll answer your prayers when you pull your socks up, mate. Samson prays, and God hears his prayers and graciously answers, not because Samson's good, but because he is kind. In the New Testament, Jesus himself, I think, touches on this very story. Jesus went to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem next week. I'm I'm hoping to stand in the very same place where Jesus said this. Jesus, on the last day of a feast in Jerusalem, said, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me As the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, Jesus meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Are you thirsty? Like Samson, he prayed. And God heard him and refreshed him. Don't fight him. Come and trust him. Trust the Saviour, Jesus Christ, his Son, who he has sent to you. I want to urge you today, as we thought about Samson, to turn from all that you know of you and turn to all that you know of him. That would be a great thing to do.